Welcome to the DaVinci Hour podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Maxwell Cooper, and in this podcast series, I interview physicians, medical innovators, and entrepreneurs making an impact on healthcare. This podcast is produced by DaVinci Academy, a multimedia medical education company that provides podcasts, video courses, and digital textbooks. You can see more on our website, www.dbiacademy.com and our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash C slash DaVinci Academy Med. This podcast is sponsored by Doc2Doc, the personal lending platform designed for doctors by doctors. Do you have some big expenses in the near future? Maybe you're moving, applying to residency or fellowship, fixing up your car or home, or starting a new practice. Doc2Doc believes that traditional lenders overestimate the risk of lending money to doctors, residents, and medical students, focusing too much on the challenges of their financial past and giving them insufficient credit for the promise of their financial future. Check out Dr. Doc's personal loan options at drdoclending.com slash DaVinci. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the DaVinci Hour podcast. I am honored this week to be joined by Dr. Harvey Castro, a ER physician and then a serial entrepreneur uh, in the digital health space. And then he's also the author of a new book, Chat GPT in Healthcare. So we're going to learn all about Chat GPT and future applications. So Dr. Castro, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Hey, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Of course, of course. So I gave you a little bit of background, but maybe maybe start with like kind of the beginning where where you went to school, where you did residency, like what you know, what your practice was looked like for a number of years and then how you essentially got into entrepreneurship. Yeah. Well, uh the usual boring self, I went to undergrad at Texas A&M. Uh, I think early on, I was a little bit of an overachiever. Back then, I said, I want to be, I, I want a law degree, I want an MD, and I want an MBA. So I got two of the three so far. And back then, my entrepreneur spirit had already started years prior, and I started the biggest uh, pre-med society at Texas A&M, and it's still there. Um, and believe it or not, they had other societies, but the one I founded and the way I did it, it's it ended up being the biggest, and it's still the biggest. And fast forward, I ended up at uh, University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston, Texas for my medical degree. At the time, it was interesting because no one else was doing problem-based learning. And I'm going to date myself. Back then, that was a thing. And so I was one of, uh, I think out of the whole medical school class, I was one of 20 students that they were experimenting with. And I thought, hey, this sounds kind of cool. I'm, I'm down for this. <laughs> and I'm glad I did it because uh, I felt like I, I, I learned medicine differently. I know now it's a common thing. That's how people learn. And then after that, I went to uh, ER training at St. Luke's Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And I did a transition year in family practice before I did ER. And so that that was kind of my journey and jumped into uh, the ER world just because I love the adrenaline. I love making quick decisions. And I, I don't know why, maybe it's a masochist in me, but I enjoy the stress. Uh, I live on stress and and I enjoy pushing myself to things that I normally don't do. And I think that's why I enjoyed ER so much because it's you never know what's coming through those doors and you have to be really good at what you do. Sure. And sure. so as I move forward, I, I kind of already knew that I, I wouldn't be able to be 60 years old and still do ER and still have, be able to pull those shifts and works nights, weekends, holidays, uh, that that was not going to happen. So early in my career, I thought I need to make sure I do other things outside of medicine or if I do medicine, combine the two so that I could create a, a new product or a new idea so that I could have another source of income. And then you had mentioned uh, how did I get into entrepreneurship? 
Man, that's a hard one. Um, I have to go back to my, I, I call it my why, you know, why do you do stuff? What, what is in your DNA? What, what's pushing you to do, you know, do all these things that you're doing. And I have to kind of tell everybody, I started in a really humble beginning. I started in New York City. Uh, my mom, uh, she was a teenager when she had me and I was a first generation American, first uh, college student, uh, grew up in literally poverty, very little means uh, to the point where it gave me this strong why today that I keep thinking, man, I, I don't want to go to that place ever again. So I'm constantly just figuring out different technologies, different ideas. Uh, the entrepreneur spirit in me is so hard to break. Uh, and every time I tell myself and my family, hey, I'm, I'm quitting, I'm done. Uh, I find something else that is just so exciting that I'm like, man, okay, I need to do this one because this one's this one's exciting for me. That's really cool. I think I saw you worked at at Parkland Hospital in in Dallas for a long time. That's that, that's like the big uh, the county hospital there. I, I just uh, I think I was telling you before we started recording. I was just finished a night stint of nights at our county hospital here in Atlanta. So it's uh, that's I'm sure you you uh, you saw the highest level of emergency medicine doing that. <laughs> yeah, that was fun. Uh, it's just crazy, and it's it's everything. I mean, I've been cursed at, spit on. <laughs> uh, you know, the whole nine yards, oh, and, yeah. <laughs> but you know what? I, I love it in a way because I, I love what I do. Um, just being in there, being in the grid, just helping people. And, and I know it's a disease state. I know things are going on that they may not be totally there. And that's why they act the way they do. And working at a County hospital, uh, it's really humbling too. Cause you mm -hmm. see everything. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and, and from a life perspective, it's humbled me cause I, I, I appreciate life even more. And uh, sometimes I'm a little OCD with, with my kids or people around me. If they do something stupid, I'm like, hey, 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 I've seen, you know, cases <laughs> of this in the ER, don't. And so I try not to do that, but it's just, uh, I guess, the doctor and me. Uh, from that point, I've actually transitioned more. I'm focused on digital health, uh, working for a company called Vital Health. It's I'm the chief clinical operating officer, and they have me working on several interesting projects, which is why I ended up working for them. Uh, just they're they're doing some interesting things, and I'm just stoked about that. That's awesome. That's awesome. So I guess some I was reading about some of your your earlier companies. You know, you developed a, a, an app for uh, you know medications and things like that, and then you you know obviously built your own like freestanding emergency room uh, company as well, which is pretty. How did you get? I guess. Were these kind of just obviously you had the bug very early, but I guess were these also kind of pain points you saw as a you know as an end user as as a practicing physician, and I guess what what led you to you know actually do something about it? <laughs> yeah, I tend to be a doer. If I see something, it's it's almost a disease. I I get it in my head, and until I do it, I'm not happy, and I won't stop. Uh, so that's probably not a good thing to be married and and your wife telling you, hey, you need to chill a little, and and it's a good balance. <laughs> so I'm gonna throw that in there. It's, it's good. And so to answer the question, I was in the emergency room, I was literally coding a patient and the pain point was time. I thought, I don't have time for this patient. And unfortunately the nurse at the time, this is what's common, common practice would literally open up a textbook, find a drip, find the correct dose, and then start the drip. And I almost lost it. I, in my head, I'm like, oh my gosh, this person's going to die and we don't have time. Like we need to like, how can I help to get it going? And then it dawned on me, I'm holding the new iPhone in my pocket. I'm like, huh, I wonder if I could just create a, an app. So I literally taught myself how to write an app. Uh, it was very, very primitive. Um, and it was called IV Meds. And believe it or not, it was in the top 10 in the world. And it killed it. 
And it was because I addressed the pain point and everybody loved. And it's interesting. I've talked to other ER doctors. They're like, oh my gosh, I use that app. And so it was kind of nice to hear. And so moving forward, I, I, I just had this pain point fixer a mentality. And I created over 30 medical apps in the app store. And big picture, I ended up selling the company, I ended up uh, not doing that anymore. And, and that kind of, that bug of, of creating products just didn't go away. Uh, so fast forward, I'm, I'm working in the emergency room and I wasn't happy because I felt like I was being called into the principal's office or like, hey, you're ordering too many CAT scans. Hey, uh, you're not spending too much time with patients, but compared to everybody else, you're spending way more time than everybody else, all the other docs. And so I remember just talking to the administrator and saying, I'm here to be a doctor. I'm not here for anything else. And I get, I need to save money and I get, I can't order certain tests, but at the same time, if I'm not ordering them, they don't have healthcare and they're not going to be able to get this test. And then I feel responsible for this patient. And I remember the administrators just being upset with me and my boss giving me heck. And finally I said, you know what? Uh, I was actually a partner in the group. Um, and, and I was making very nice, lucrative, uh, passive income from the group because I was one of the last members to join and, and they ended up creating this amazing company that ended up selling. But I remember telling them, I don't care if this company's selling or not. I just want out. Just, just let me out. And I got out of my ownership and, uh, I got very little for my ownership. Uh, if I had, I stayed, I would have made so much more, but I, I didn't want to sell myself short. And I went into this thing in Texas. It was a new thing called the freestanding ERs. And I thought, man, this is amazing. And I remember my colleagues looking at me like I was crazy. Like you're going into something that we don't know what it is and and you may never come back and you may never get a job and all these horrible things. And I was like, I feel like that's just my personality. I can like sit down with the patient. I can spend an hour with the patient. I can roll out the red carpet and I did. I did that. I ended up helping uh, create about, I want to say around 20 ERs for other people. And then finally, I thought, huh, I understand the medicine. I understand the business. Why not start my own brand? Why not create my own ERs, my own staffing company, billing company, just do all of it and create a better product in healthcare. And so I ended up creating these ERs. And uh, since then, um, I'm no longer with the company. I I've moved on. Um, but in a, the good way, I feel like I was able to give back to patients and, and have fun in my career and give medicine the way I felt needed to be given. And in that stage of my life, I thought, man, this is an amazing experience. Like, wow, not many people can say they, they got to do that. And so I felt blessed. That's really cool and, and incredibly innovative. I'm curious, how, how does a freestanding, just from a logistics standpoint, how does a freestanding ER work? I mean, what if like if you have to admit somebody or like, is it, I guess, maybe just a lot of, a lot of ER medicine, I guess, is, as you know, very well, like in, in some ways can be dealt with and not, I don't want to say an outpatient basis, but like, you know, that yeah. you can deal with it in a short amount of time and then they follow up with their PCP. Is that, was that kind of the concept? I'm just curious how that, yeah, how that no, let's works. talk about it. So, yeah. the, so the beauty of the ER, like you mentioned, you get the whole bell curve effect. You get those people that really need to be there and you got people that in their mind, they need to be there. But then as a doctor and you know, the medicine, you're like, oh, this could have gone to the urgent care. This could have waited till tomorrow. And they don't know. And so I understand that. So from a business point of view and, and platform, it's really smart. Uh, the companies that originally started this, the idea is allow the patient to come in because to your point, you could argue that 90% of them end up back home and that 10% 
we did something called observation medicine. So we would keep them, we would rule out MIs, we would uh, call the specialist to come see them, we would hold them. And in the state of Texas, I was allowed to hold people for 23 hours from the point they walked in. So in those 23 hours, my mission was to, maybe they're dehydrated, give them fluids, maybe they were in mild rhabdo, uh, maybe I could do whatever I could to avoid the transfer. Now, obviously, if they're having an MI or if they need uh, some major surgery or an ectopic pregnancy, they're not going to sit in our ER. They're going to be transferred. But those cases are far and few in between. Um, and what's really interesting, I almost felt like we pushed the envelope. Um, I had specialists, uh, surgeons, uh, friends, uh, that things that would normally go to the ER, we had them credentialed in our ER. And so they would come and do hand surgery or hand procedures. Uh, some of our appendicitis cases, I would literally send them to the surgical center. And if they were closed, um, a lot of hospitals would just admit them and hold them till the next morning. So we're like, well, if you're just going to do that, why not just hold a patient here? And if something changes, then we can transfer in the middle of the night. But if not, then let's just transfer. So we literally would transfer. Uh, and I know some people would cringe. We would then send them to the surgical center, they would have the procedure and they'd go home. But for the patient, it was great because they saved money. Uh, they got amazing care because instead of going to a hospital and being, you know, one nurse to so many patients, they were just, you know, one nurse. Or if we, if we had a bunch of patients, we'd bring in extra staff, but they were getting amazing one-on-one -on -one care. That's a really cool model. And I mean, that's, I imagine, uh, you know, you save, you save them a hospital admission, which would save, you know, you know, the, both the healthcare system and the, the patient a lot of money. That's, that's pretty cool. And then how you coordinated with a ambulatory surgery center. That's because a lot of these, you know, like you say, like appendicitis, cholecystectomy, like those kind of cases, you could, you know, do those on, you know, a lot of the surgeons thankfully now can do those on an outpatient basis, which is pretty mm -hmm. cool. I guess, so you, you exited that company. Is that, is that right? And then um, I guess, what did, what did you move on to after that? You know, at, after that, I took time for me. I believe it or not, and I think most doctors can relate. I everybody's just go go go, and I remember uh, thinking, okay, I'm in a good place in my life. Why not just take some time off? Um, then I, I literally got engaged and got married and uh, took took a hiatus, <laughs> and it was really nice. Uh, I focused on me, which was interesting because everything's always been about patients and getting to that next landmark, you know, going through residency, going through med school, that first job, you know, all that stuff. And I thought, huh, I've never really slowed down. Maybe it's time that I just kind of enjoy. And so I remember the the first time I, I literally had my first week off, I, I, I didn't know what to do. I was literally going crazy. Uh, but then as life continued, I was able to eat better. I lowered my cholesterol or my blood pressure, uh, lost weight. Uh, my emotional IQ went up, uh, just happier. Not that I was upset or bitter, but I just had more time. And so after the wedding, my wife and I, we had discussed that once that's uh, we're done with that, I'm going to get back into uh, working, but I was focused more on digital health and, and working remotely and and not so much clinical, uh, but more on the entrepreneur side, startups, uh, telehealth, uh, things like that. And then ironically, uh, this thing called ChatGPT came out and I happened to be playing with it. And it gave me that aha moment where I thought, huh, this is exactly how I was in the ER with coding a patient where I had this amazing feeling where I'm like, man, this could change lives. This could really have an impact. And so me being a little OCD, literally wrote a book on it. And uh, I wrote it within like three weeks, had it published within the month. And 
looking back, I, I, I have a little bit of bragging rights. I can say, you know what? I created the first chat GPT and healthcare book. With that said, I wasn't happy with it. Me being a perfectionist, being a doctor, as you can relate, you know, we were the worst critic. And so mm -hmm. then I looked at it and said, you know, there's so much that has already changed in a month. I'm writing a second book and I'm going to focus <laughs> this one on patient care because patients are the ones like the first one was just like 10,000 feet high. You know, how does this ChatGPT work or just AI in general? Where can you put it? And I thought, man, I've really, what I really care about is the patient. Like that's really what makes me drives, drives me towards healthcare. So I said, that's where the book over, I always, these cameras, this one over here, not that one over there, this one, <laughs> ChatGPT, Unlocking the Potential of Patient Empowerment. That's where that one came from. And it's literally going over the, the ethics, the legal, uh, the good, the bad, the ugly, and then showing a patient how to use it. Because at the end of the day, I know some uh, people listening are like, man, he shouldn't be promoting that. The way I see it is doctors and patients are going to use this tool and you can prohibit, you can block the IP address at the hospital. You can do all that stuff. At the end of the day, people are still going to do it. Mm -hmm. And so would you rather them do it correctly and understand the risk that they're going into or just haphazardly go in and just do whatever? And so I'm on the side of teach them the right way and then teach them the good, the bad, the ugly, and then let that person decide how they're going to use it. And that way they know how to use the tool better and they know how not to use the tool and so you know that's my my big soapbox with ChatGPT. but but it's been fun I've, i'm having a blast with it that's awesome uh i'm curious you know this is a you know a newer thing you know people I'm, i feel like i'm hearing almost weekly now more and more about chat gpt and its applications in healthcare i think i saw an article in forbes yesterday about it i'm curious it it just came out and like you know, November, 2022. Is that right? And then yes. I, I guess, I guess for the people who may be still wondering, and even myself a little bit, maybe give us like an overview. What, what is chat GPT? And I guess like how, like, how is it at least initially being, you know, used or thought to be used in healthcare? Yeah. Good question. So chat GPT, my best example is think of it as you're having a mentor, someone you can talk to about anything and chat GPT will have a conversation with you. And I know the common argument is like, well, I can go on Google and it can tell me anything I want to know. The difference is it generates a response on the fly. It literally does not go on the internet. It's going through their databases and it gives you a response. And so from a doctor's point of view, that sounds great. And there's some pros and cons, but how it's used and what it is, it's basically generating a response. And I have a hard time with this question a million. I've answered a million times since I still don't know how to answer it just because it does so much, but I, I like showing examples. For example, we're a physician, say you had a diabetic patient, you could go into chat GPT and say, I need a low glycemic index diet and I need it. Uh, this uh, patient's allergic to eggs and they also hate fruit. Give me a diet Monday through Friday, three meals a day for this patient. And ChatGPT will generate a diet with low glycemic index, and it will be conscious of all the things you said. But then you can take it to the next level and, and reply to it, say, okay, I need a grocery list and how much I need to buy of this. And it will calculate. And if you say, hey, there's a party of two at my house, we need two of us for the whole week, it will recalculate for those, for everyone in the house. Then you can turn around and say, hey, I'm going to New York City and I need to follow this diet. Uh, what restaurants or where, where, what kind of foods should I stick to? And it will create that. And then say you wanted to create a discharge instruction and say it was for someone that doesn't speak English, 
you could take that same thing and say translate to Spanish and it'll translate it to Spanish. You cannot do any of those things in Google. And if you did, it would take you forever. And so from my point of view, the next question is how can this be used in medicine? I like dividing the experience with ChatGPT into three categories, before seeing the patient, seeing the patient, and then after the patient. So before the patient is basically medical students, residents, doctors on that side of the world, we can put uh, medical literature into ChatGPT and it could summarize. Uh, we can create note cards for it. We can create tables. Uh, there's a capacity of how much information you can put in it, but you could put it in, in bits and get those summaries. So from a tool educational point, I see that as a, as a use. On the patient side, the same thing, but the problem on the patient side is they're not doctors. They don't have that experience. And so when they put information in, there's a couple of biases. The way they put it in may not be the same inputs that you and I would put it in because we're doctors. We speak medical language and we can talk to it in the way a doctor does. And so the output that comes out of ChatGPT is going to be different from even you and me because we have different specialties. But then on top of that, from a patient, that's totally different. And so the problem on the patient side using it is that there's this thing called hallucination. Basically, a respectful way, I call it a, a great carsman, a cell, cell, you know, cell or whatever because it can tell you anything, but you don't know if that's true or false. And the worst part is it could be half true, half false. So for the patient, I recommend if they're using that information to run it by a doctor, because ultimately that doctor is gonna know yes or no. And not just any doctor, because obviously if it's talking about cardiology and you bring it to a dermatologist, they may be like, yeah, it looks good to me. But in reality, it could be wrong because that's not their field. Uh, the other part a patient can do is get be better prepared. So they can create questions and say, okay, I have diabetes. I'll stick to that example. And I need to ask my doctor, what kind of questions should I ask? Well, it'll come up with questions and follow-up questions. So with the average doctor only spending 13 minutes with the patient, how amazing would it be for a patient to come in prepared? You know, I know some doctors are uh, cringing out there saying, oh my gosh, they're going to ask me all this stuff. It'll be like Dr. Google days. But in reality, I think it'll be better because they'll be very prepared, very efficient conversation. And then they can say, hey, I read this online, be it Google or be it ChatGPT and say, hey, what do you think? And now that elevates the education level, elevates the care. And then therefore, I think you'll have better preventive medicine. You'll have better care for the patient. On the patient interaction side, I see ChatGPT being used on more on the doctor side. And I know doctors aren't supposed to be doing this, but they are. They're going in and typing in symptoms of a patient and saying, hey, what could it be? Help me with the differential diagnosis. And so I caution doctors with doing that because of the hallucination effect. But if they have enough medicine background and understand the pros and cons, then you know, again, they're going to end up doing it anyway. But I see that as a good use. The last part that I like talking about and uh, just kind of sharing with others is the ability to give good discharge instructions. I fell in love with this example. Uh, this hospital in the uh, United Kingdom basically took pediatric asthma discharge instructions and fed it into ChatGPT. One of the advantages of ChatGPT, you can convert the way it speaks and say, talk to me in a language of like a five-year-old. And so he gave discharge instructions at a five-year-old level. But what I thought was amazing is that it dissected something that normally would go to the parents, to a child. And then on top of that, this was brilliant. They went into Dolly and created a coloring book and created the two and made it into a book and basically gave it to the child and said, this is how we're gonna discharge children from this age to this age with asthma exacerbation. And I thought, man, 
How amazing, because now you're really taking this technology to the next level. You're giving personalized care. And that's one of the things you can change with ChatGPT. You can kind of convert the way it talks. You're using another AI to create the coloring book. And from a child's point of view, I'm thinking, wow, you know, I can teach a child all I want, but after about 30 seconds, they're like running out the door trying to do something else. And, and I only have so much time. And then from the parents, if they're not in that space of educating, they're only going to be able to read the discharge instructions. Half of them will throw them away and, and they're not getting much. But then this way, the child's coloring, looking at it, having questions, taking it in. And I thought, man, this is the way to change medicine. This is another way of helping our patients. So I know that was a little bit long, but kind of wanted to give those examples. No, that was an excellent overview. And, uh, you know, the, the I think you hit on a lot of great points there, especially like patient education. I think both before, during, and then after the visit, I feel like patients always, you know, mm-hmm. uh, they always have questions or they don't, you know, they didn't write everything down that the doctor. So I think good discharge instructions, you know, I always remember like, like when I was an intern, like doing all these like epic auto populate discharge yeah. instructions and all that, <laughs> and as yeah. I'm sure you've done before. And, oh, yeah. and, uh, you know, you, you, I sit there and wonder, you know, is this, is, you know, are they going to read all this? Are they really like, and I think having, that was brilliant. Like the, you know, making a coloring book for a child so they can understand it. Cause they're not going to understand that pathophysiology of asthma and like how it manifests and all that. I I think most adults probably wouldn't unless they're in healthcare. (laughs) And then especially compliance, you know, taking the inhaler and checking and take the inhaler. I thought, man, this is so huge. Like I I, I would love to do a study on it and see how many patients were not coming back, you know, just because they were Mm -hmm. doing a better job keeping uh, asthma at bay. Sure. Sure. So I'm curious from the standpoint of, and it sounds like you touched on some of this in your latest book, like, I guess the, the regulatory aspect and the legal aspect of this is, you know, cause people could say, well, if they're, you know, using this at home and it tells them, you know, don't go to the ER or do go to the ER, like what's, I guess, what's the liability there, I guess it is. And maybe that's probably hasn't been fully figured out yet, but I guess, I guess, where do you see that kind of, uh, kind of shaking out? Yeah, this is why I'm so stuck on just going out there and giving my talks and just helping because my biggest fear, and I know that sounds crazy, one of my one of my biggest fears is that someone out there is going to self-diagnose, it's going to stay home in a silent MI and may pass away because ChatGPT told them that it, everything was fine. And I know that sounds extreme, but to take it to another level, I'm more worried of countries outside the United States because they can actually... Uh, self-subscribe, self-diagnose, self-subscribe to X and Y medication. And it worries me because if they do that, then what if they don't even have the disease? So number one, they're freaking out about a disease they don't even, they may not have. Second, they may give themselves medicine that may not be indicated or maybe antiquated or something that on the books, you know, we learn about medicines that are out there, but nobody uses them. That's not even indicated, but the book may, the ChatGPT may say so. And so now we're really bumping into a lot of ethical and legal issues. And so to answer your question, um, I made an algorithm on my second book to kind of walk you through that particular scenario, because I'm worried that patients are going to end up using this like Dr. Google. And the scarier part is they can customize it so much that it sounds even more real. And so I'm, I'm very worried. And from a legal point of view, who ends up with the responsibility of this? 
ironically would not be open AI. It's going to fall back to, depending how it's used, the patient, if the patient just self-diagnosed and, and try to claim that ChatGPT told me, because they have warnings on ChatGPT saying don't. And then obviously the uh, user agreement that we all sign on websites that nobody ever reads, it's it's in there that they, they're not going to be held liable. So I, I think it'd be hard for, for them to be sued. What's really interesting from a, a legal part is depending how the tool is used will determine if it's if it needs FDA approval. And now it just becomes more complicated because depending how it's used, <laughs> if the FDA says, yep, this AI is a medical tool we, and it's not FDA approved for this, then depending again how it's used, some companies unscrupulously or not knowing may end up doing things that will cross the line with the FDA and I can see lawsuits coming that way. From another ethical point of view, just to bring out completeness, you have to remember um, these databases are based on research. And if you think of who has been researched as a medical student, we know that there's biases in the populations that are studied. So if some population has more funds to be studied for that particular disease, and that disease will be more represented in our databases, and not that it's more important, but it just got funded. And then in theory, it seems more important. And then even worse is the therapeutic treatment for that population may be totally different from another population. And so now ChatGPT is kind of pushing and reinforcing biases, and that's even more scary. And so how do I see this story ending? I think in the future, near future, we'll have something called BioGPT or just call it generically some other GPT out there that will be strictly related to healthcare that the database itself is not going to have law and other facets. It's going to be strictly healthcare, and it's going to have EMR records in the sense that it's just have like the information, no names, no HIPAA violation. It'll just have the, the, the bones of what's inside the EMR. So like the patient history and, you know, where they discharge with this and the, how, how often did patients go home with chest pain, stuff like that, but then it'll help the probability. And so I can give a real example as an ER doctor, I could put in the following symptoms and then it spits out, okay, this person has a 60% chance of MI, 10% for AAA based on the data you've put in. And so then now this becomes a, a, a better tool because now it becomes a, just like using my smartphone, just becomes another tool in my stethoscope. Um, so I, I foresee, I don't know how many years in the future, but I could see a future in maybe five years where it just becomes standard of care. And then once it becomes standard of care, now we've run into other ethical and legal issues because if those doctors that do not use ChatGPT, technically you're not going with the standard of care and now you can be sued for not using it. So that is coming as well, which is interesting. Yeah, no, that's very interesting. You know, it, I'm curious, you know, in my field of radiology, as you know, people have been talking about AI, you know, replacing radiologists for years and, and you know, you know, being kind of these grandiose predictions of the future and that, and, you know, that obviously hasn't happened, even not even close yet. Um, but it is, it, we are seeing more and more of it being adopted and being a tool, like you said. And I think a lot of radiologists in the space are, you know, looking at it as almost in a way, like when we switched from plain film, you know, actual films to, you know, electronic packs and things like that. And that if you don't adopt it, it's going, you're probably going to get left behind. I'm curious, you know, from, the standpoint of, you know, the ER primary care clinics that where I think this probably would have a lot of use is, you know, some people may initially knee jerk and say, oh, is this going to replace PCPs or ER doctors? And, you know, I, I, I think you would agree as well as I don't think so, <laughs> at least in the near, probably our lifetimes. But um, I guess as a tool, I guess, how do you see it more like, 
obviously with that diagnosis, then do you see it even getting into like recommending treatments and things like that? I guess, how do you see it being like continuing to evolve as a, as a tool we use? Yeah. My favorite statement that I, I say is AI, excuse me, AI is not going to replace you. It's not using AI that's going to replace you. And from an administrator, at one point I was a CEO of a hospital system. And I can honestly say those doctors that fought me with their not wanting to use a keyboard, not wanting to type, not wanting to use EMR, pushing that they really wanted to use paper charting were the ones that I'm like, man, I why am I having you work for me if you know you're such a pain <laughs> to be blunt? And and it got to the point where I was like, okay, I'd rather have a physician that is versed with just the basic keyboard, is not asking me for a subsidy to have uh, someone type for them than the ones that, that could just do it. And so fast forward, how do I see this play out? I think from a medical, legal, ethical point, I do see a future where this tool will help decrease the risk of patients and decrease um, adverse outcomes to the point where the AI will say, you know what, uh, this person came in with back pain and chest pain, and you didn't even ask the questions for AAA, and, you, and they went home with the AAA or something. It, it would avoid it because it's literally a, I already know this technology exists. It's listening to the patient interaction. It's charting the patient interaction. And then you have a risk management tool that's checking off the list and making sure that these things were done. And so fast forward, who would I hire? Or what platform would I hire? I'd, I'd want the one that's the safest for my patients. And so to answer your question about giving uh, recommendations, it would be giving recommendations. And uh, will it replace a doctor? No. And will it be a threat to a doctor? Not at all. I, at the end of the day, it's the human being that needs to give that approval to say, you know what, I agree or no, this is way off. I, I disagree. And and this is where our medical gestalt kicks in and our gut feeling and our experience. You know, you could feed that all into a computer, but, you know, that element of emotional uh, intelligence where you go into a room and you're like, something's wrong and you keep digging, even though all the data is telling you otherwise, like, no, this patient could go home, but your gestalt tells you, no, there's something wrong. And I'm going to keep digging here. Um, I have a hard time believing that chat GPT will get to that level. I mean, it might, but I just have a feeling that at the end of the day, it's always going to be the doctor that's going to give it its blessings. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And I think it, it sounds like a chat GPT kind of like allow a lot of AI algorithms and radiology are being developed is like initially just even triaging patients, you know, like they're, you know, cause we'll have the, as a radiologist, we'll have like this big list of studies we have to read. And like, you could have like a positive PE sitting there, but if you're, you know, just kind of going down the list, you know, you may not get to it till later. And so like having AI kind of identify that I'm wondering, do you see that, especially like in the emergency room, you know, helping quickly identify patients where like, yeah, maybe we should probably pay a little bit more attention to this patient quicker than some. Do you see that kind of playing out as well? Oh my gosh. Yes. Uh, just to give you an interesting example, there's cameras and I, I flipped out when I heard this and I read about this, there's cameras that just look at you, gives you a blood pressure. And I'm like, how in the world does that even work? And so I see a future where you walk in and it's literally this camera that already knows this, your temperature, your blood pressure, your vitals. It knows if you're changing, you're just sitting there waiting and it already knows. And then based on your symptoms, it almost tags you like a camera and says, okay, this person has this, this, and it's starting to risk stratify you. And then you in triage, if you have a hundred patients, you're like, okay, <laughs> where are the ones or which ones? And it's better than what we have today, you know? And so for example, you know, women can have the atypical MI. 
And so if someone came in with back pain or jaw pain, rather, two in the morning, you know, maybe the triage nurse may not catch it. But if you have that as an algorithm, it would flag it and say, no, no, this person's actually high risk. They need to come, even though the vitals and everything else looks good. And it's something as minute as jaw pain. No, this could be an MI. That's really interesting. I guess kind of a a provocative or, or ethical question in a way. I, I actually did a podcast episode with a medical ethicist on AI and radiology. He does a lot of like ethics of AI and radiology. And we were talking about like if the AI algorithm in the case of like a radiology algorithm identifies like a pulmonary nodule and then the radiologist looks at it and goes, oh, I don't think that's real. And then it turns out it was real and the patient has cancer. You know, where does the liability fall? And I realize this, you know, this is probably early in, but I guess I'm just curious your take on, you know, if the chat GPT said, Hey, like this, you should probably, you know, get a CT scan and, you know, this patient may have a dissection or something like that. And, you know, as a physician, you say, Yeah, I don't, it doesn't really fit, you know, it doesn't seem like it. And then they end up having it. I guess where, where do you see that liability falling? Like, is it the physician that entirely takes it? Does it go on the, the chat GPT, you know, developer? I guess, where do you see some of that kind of playing out? Yeah, until ChatGPT becomes a standard of care, it'll always fall on the doctor, always. Once ChatGPT becomes the standard of care, then it's easier to blame ChatGPT, or I hate saying ChatGPT because it's not going to be ChatGPT. It'll be some generic GPT out there that's being developed. Then that will be held liable, and then you could then lawyers will start going after the company and the developers. Uh, that created the product because that's the standard of the care and it, it made a mistake. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Cause it could also say, I guess that everything's fine. And then mm -hmm. the, the doctor disagrees with that. So, um, but yeah, which is kind of interesting, I guess. I'm also curious, like where, where do you see like the, like, where do you see this going, you know, five, 10 years from now, like as far as, um, you know, being in, do you see this like in every ER, every, every outpatient clinic, you know, on the wards, like, I guess, um, you know, what, maybe in critical care, like where do you see, where do you see kind of like other applications that maybe maybe haven't been explored or are still early in the in the process? No, that's a good question. Oh, I take a big uh, sigh on that one because I honestly think in my heart and soul that AI is here to stay. Um, just yesterday, ChatGPT announced their API going out, and I know I'm I'm almost counting. I want to count how many days before a developer. I say days. Uh, because I really think in the next few days, we're going to hear some major company come out saying, oh, we have ChatGPT in healthcare, uh, because it's going to be in every every industry. And to take it another level, you know, everybody's used to Grammarly or, you know, autocorrect or your Alexa or your Siri. That is how I see AI going in. It's going to be in every industry marketing, uh, in healthcare, let's keep it healthcare, it, it'll be on our websites, it'll be in our patient interactions. And so how do I see this playing out? I honestly think it's going to be everywhere to the point where people won't realize that, that it's being used, but it will be used. And so to your point of all the questions you ask, I think it's all of the above, every single industry. It may not, in some industries, like you said, may lend itself more than others. And so you made a great example. Radiology has been adapted really quickly. Um, Whereas, you know, for example, pathology is another good one because it can look at pathology slides and make the doctor more efficient and get diagnosis quicker. And the doctor can see even more with less time. And so moving forward, uh, the future is kind of scary. And this is why I talk about it, because I feel like we need to create these tools, but we can't let Microsoft create these tools. We need to have doctors that are listening today, listening to this and saying, you know what? I want to be a leader. I want to be the one that's creating this tool. And I want to be the one that's 
facing this with patients because at the end of the day, we know medicine. Microsoft doesn't know medicine. We understand how to take care of patients. Business people don't know how to take care of patients because they look at it with different lenses. So why not advocate for other doctors, healthcare providers to go out there and be a leader in this technology so that when the end product is made, then it becomes a true product for our patients. And so that's why I literally wrote the book because I'm wanting to do that. Now, do I make any money in the side for doing this? No, not at all. But do I enjoy it? Yes. And I will I continue doing it? Yes. And so I'm, I'm hopeful to be that leader, uh, be that advisor for different companies out there to help them create these new products to help our patients. That's really cool. I think that's an excellent point that, you know, doctors, you know, the end users really should be driving this that, you know, like you said, the, the big corporations have big different motivations and it, it may not all be bad. You know, they have obviously developed many great products, but oh, yeah. they just don't, they don't know what they don't know in a lot of ways. And and I think that's, that's an excellent point. I think kind of segueing a little bit, like, I know you do a lot of advising now for, for companies as well. I guess, do you, is it in the realm of chat GTP, GPT, or is it more, is it even broader than that? I guess, what, what are some kind of the advising roles you're, you're carrying on these days? Yeah, it's kind of crazy. I'll, I'll talk about the one that everybody will be like, oh, that's kind of cool. The, the first one that's kind of fun. Um, I'm working for a telemedicine company called Vital Health, and I'm their chief clinical operating officer. And that's just the usual telemedicine. And we're doing some things they don't want me to discuss just yet because it's things in development that they are going to, we're going to announce here in a few months. Uh, but big picture, I'm excited. And that's fun because I'm, I'm able to incorporate just AI in general to what I'm doing and create new products for patients that I just mentioned. Uh, one of the other companies that I'm working for, I'm really stoked about. It's amazing. Uh, and obviously I'm biased because I'm working for them, but I'm an advisor for them. So here's the skinny. It's really cool. Uh, say you have um, an iPad and they created this uh, ultrasound transducer. And the concept is creating ultrasound where the AI is helping any person that's never studied ultrasound to do their own scans. And so then this machine would basically, uh, you could take it home, you would scan, say breast cancer, or you're doing, uh, say you had a PE or DVT rather, and you want to scan, it would walk you through it. And it would tell you, no, you're not pushing hard enough, no, to the right, to the left, deeper. And then it would take pictures and send it to the radiologist. And so this idea uh, it's going to morph into uh, medical schools, ER training to do your FAST exam, uh, nurses and doctors to get IV access. So I'm thinking, man, this has so many uses. How amazing. So I've I've been helping the company come up with different ways of using it. They, they had a, a certain scope that they were looking at. And then after I started working with them, now I'm kind of giving them different verticals and medicine that they can really focus on and work on. So that one is really exciting. Uh, the name of the company is Pons out of New York, actually New Jersey. Um, and it's on my LinkedIn. The other one that's, <laughs> some people are going to cringe out there and, and I almost didn't do it because of it, but I thought this is going to help patients. And what it is, is basically medicinal marijuana. And I know half the people are already freaking out out there saying, oh my gosh, he's, he's uh, advocating marijuana. I'm not advocating marijuana. I'm advocating medicinal marijuana. And what the company did was interesting. They're actually uh, have clinical trials in Germany that have already started. And what this company does is pretty simple and, and smart. They created a transfuser that has different types of cannabis. And so it has different concentration, different types of cannabis. So you as a doctor, say your patient, say I'm your patient, and I say, hey, I'm suffering from anxiety. You could literally create on your, on your smartphone 
the dose and say it has more anxiety. So it'll give me different types of cannabis. And then I have a diffuser that talks to my phone and it's talking back and forth. And then I use the cannabis and it's working on anxiety. And then I have less side effects because it's working more on the anxiety. But let's just say I suffer more insomnia and I have to be up and running the next day. Well, then you can dial it up towards the indication for insomnia. Then I use the medicine through the diffusers, talk to my phone so it can adjust. And I thought, man, that is the way to use this. So you're giving the right amount for medical and it's only for medicinal purposes and they have certain indications. And then, so they started in Germany and uh, they're supposed to be here in the United States in the next two years. But I thought, man, that's, that's kind of cool. Um, <laughs> I know it's out there, but I think it, I, I see it as just like any other drug that's out there. It's just different. Uh, it just has called cannabis, but, but the way I see it, it's used in a, a medical way. That's a, that's a wide variety of, uh, advisory roles there. That's, that's pretty cool. You're kind of have your hands in, in all different types of uh, endeavors. That's pretty cool. I, I'm curious, you know, what, what's your advice for, you know, physicians out there that want to like, you know, do a little bit more than just practice medicine. They want to, you know, be an advisor to a company or, or bring that clinical perspective to new technologies being, I guess, what, what's your advice on, I guess, one, like finding those opportunities and two, like, I guess, finding ways that they can offer the most to, to helping develop, you know, these technologies. Cause I think we, we need more physician input on, on a lot of these different things. Yeah, good question. That's a tough one. I think it's just being an advocate. So if you're a pediatrician or you're a radiologist, whatever your angle of medicine is, I think that's where you should advocate for. And I would encourage you to be on LinkedIn, encourage you to be on social media. Obviously, don't violate any HIPAA laws. If your hospital's against you videotaping X, Y, and Z, don't. But but my point is you want to have a voice and you want to create that what I call digital footprint. You want to have information out there. You want to be an advocate for your patients. So I encourage you to write articles, post them on LinkedIn, submit them to Forbes magazine, get your name out there because people out there are watching. And so other companies will start approaching you and saying, hey, we are working on product X and we see you are an expert in your field for Y. Why not work with us? That's the passive way of doing it. And I know that sounds really active. The active way of doing it would be literally find out your niche, find out what it is that you're really good at and look for companies in that niche that would love to have you on their team as their medical advisor, as their medical officer. Uh, there's just so many things that are out there, but if you're not looking, you will never find it because you're not even looking for it. So th those would be my top two tips. Oh, that's great. Great advice. Great advice. Um, I guess as, as we wrap up here, I want to ask you something that I ask every guest is when you're not, you know, doing building companies and doing new technologies, I guess, how do you, how do you find that balance? What are your passions outside of work? If, if that's even, if that's possible? <laughs> yeah. No, I've tried my best to create an environment where it's eight to five and, or maybe nine to five. I try my best and I just, those are my working hours. And if something's outside of that hours, I try my best to fight it or reschedule or make up time. And I try my best to incorporate time with, 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 with what matters, which is my kids, my wife, my loved ones, my mother. And so I purposely schedule time. And I know that's easier said than done. I know at times I, I fail. Uh, I know I'm not doing a great job because I, I, I get overwhelmed with all the things I want to do. And I'm a little OCD that I'm like, no, I need to do this. Uh, but to give you an example, literally today, uh, after this podcast, I told my wife, let's go on a lunch date and we're going to go out and have fun and have lunch and enjoy. And I'm made it a point that every Friday, I make sure we go on a date as well. 
And then on the weekends, I make sure I, I don't do anything if I can avoid it. And I just spend time and it's dedicated to my family. And I am there. I'm unplugged from technology and I'm 100% present uh, for my wife. And I have a stepson that he's uh, seven years old and he plays soccer. So I make it a point to go to his games, coach him, play with him, do stuff so that I am balancing life. That's great. That's great. Yeah. Having having fun in that balance is, is important. I guess the, the last thing is where, where can people find out more about what you're working on, find out, find the book, buy the book, um, those types of things and, and, and connect with you as well. Yeah. Uh, I'm on all the social, uh, all the major social media platforms and my handle is Harvey Castro, MD as in medical doctor. And uh, I spend most of my time on LinkedIn. So if you can uh, friend me on LinkedIn, that'd be great or follow me. Uh, I post a lot of things on AI and entrepreneurship, and I'm about to ironically create uh, an AI podcast that's coming out in the next two to three weeks. So stay tuned on that one. That'll be fun. And then as far as the book, it's on Amazon uh, paperback and uh, Kindle edition. I highly recommend both of them, but um, obviously I mentioned I'm biased towards the second one. So I would kind of push you more towards the second one, uh, unless you've never heard of any of these things. And maybe the first one would be a good, good, quick speed read. Uh, but the second one, I think you'll enjoy. Uh, and literally as we speak, I am working on submitting my third book and it's about biohacking and losing weight. And I hope to have that out in the next two weeks. That's awesome. Well, you're certainly a, a very industrious and productive uh, guy. That's that's pretty cool. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy schedule to be with us. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It was an honor and it was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DaVinci Hour podcast presented by DaVinci Academy. Please be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow the podcast on your podcast platform of choice to catch the latest episodes. Please leave a comment or a review and share it with a friend. Lastly, you can find all of our podcasts, video courses, and books on our website, dviacademy.com. Thank you for listening.